and turn with me to the book of Numbers again this morning, Numbers, and we're going to be in Numbers chapter 26, Numbers 26. I, uh, <clears throat> I'm so creative, I, I entitled this sermon title, uh, the, the same title as uh, my first uh, sermon from Numbers chapter 1, A Census of All the Congregation, and it's a census of all the congregation. Again, uh, that's what we find here in this text this morning. Anyways, uh, hopefully uh, um, that will prepare you for what is to come, if you remember Numbers chapter 1 and the excitement that, that that was for us as we opened up, began the book of Numbers. But we are in Numbers 26. We're more than halfway through, and this is actually the beginning of the second part of this book of Numbers. Uh, so uh, have no fear, it's really, uh, this book's two parts, and so we're, we finished 1 through 25, and now we're going to finish this latter part of Numbers, Numbers 26, uh, to the end. Anyways, what if I told you that in my office right over there through that door on my desk is a piece of paper, and on that piece of paper is a record, a record of every household in this church that attends this church that would receive a million dollars if you go if you find your name on that list uh, would you would you believe it would you go into my office to see if your name the, the, your household was on that list probably not huh yeah, you say no no it's, he's I know first of all where would where would that money come from and uh, you know it depends on, maybe it depends on who's saying it. And since it's me, and you know that I'm not a, a billionaire, and I haven't been, you know, I haven't been buying any lottery tickets recently, uh, then you probably think, no, PH is not going to give us a million dollars, even if it, my name is on the list. But you might be curious. You might be. Um, what if, no, though I might not be able to deliver such a promise, uh, what if it was somebody like, uh, like uh, Bill Gates or Elon Musk? And he said that there was a piece of paper on his desk that with the name of every household that he would give a million dollars to. Would you believe that? When, while we know that he and those rich men like that are, are, are capable of doing so, uh, uh, we might not think that they would do so because that's not generally how they operate. They, you know, they, though they're very charitable men and we, uh, they give to charity, but they don't, they don't, don't give to private individuals. But what if the one promising on a piece of paper to give a great inheritance to every household found on the list was God. Now we know when he is one who is able and certainly he one who is uh, capable of filling and faithful to fulfill that. We'd more likely believe that. And in a way, we, we find this, this odd scenario, this you know, maybe awkward illustration uh, in our text today. Our text today is a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel. Again, it's not the first time, it's the second time that we find this happening. It is primarily, just as it was in Numbers chapter 1, a a list of all the fighting men of Israel, the warriors, the soldiers, men who are 20 years old and upward. But secondly, it is a list, and more importantly, it is a list of a promise, an IOU. It is a promise to all those households listed on this list, this census, that each of them would receive an inheritance in the promised land. If their household was on the list, they had a future place in the promised land of Canaan. And such a promise, of course, does not depend upon the faith of the one who is promised, but it depends completely upon the faithfulness 
of the one who promises the land. And we know that God is faithful. The reality, of course, though, is that while we know God is faithful, sometimes for us it is hard to trust in the Lord. Sometimes we act and live as if God is not faithful and we are not faithful to him in trusting him. But the people of God, what you and I need on a daily basis, regularly throughout life, living in this world, is to be reminded regularly that God is faithful. That God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his word. And moreover, God is faithful to his people, to you and me. If you belong to him, then no matter where you are, no matter what you are facing, no matter when it may be, your God is faithful to you. He is, he has been, he always will be. And his faithfulness spurs the people of God, you and I, you and me, on to faith in him throughout the journey of this life. Wherever he takes us, whether it's in Egypt, whether in the wilderness, or whether on the cusp of the promised land, we can trust in God because God is faithful. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. That's really the theme of this morning's sermon. Now, as a quick review of this book of Numbers, it records for us the 40 years of wandering of Israel in the wilderness. From Egypt into crossing the Red Sea into Mount Sinai where they, where they received the law, and from there they wandered towards all the way to Kadesh Barnea. But because of the rebellion, God sent them in a, in a, in, back into the wilderness for another 38 and a half years for a total of 40 years in the wilderness. This book is structured then around 40 years of wandering, two censuses, two generations of the nation of Israel. The first generation was numbered in chapter 1. The second generation we find numbered here in chapter 26. And following the census of the, uh, following uh, the, this, this uh, census, Israel is going to prepare and is going to be prepared to enter into the promised land. And so God, in preparing them, tells them to number the sons of Israel, all the congregation, all the fighting men from 20 years old and upward. It is the official beginning of the second generation of the Israel in the wilderness. The first generation has completely died by this point, and the next generation is camped in the plains of Moab. They can, they're camped they're right across in the Jordan, along the Jordan River, they're just looking over across from opposite of Jericho, uh, not too far away, where they will eventually be uh, enter and conquer as the first city of the Promised Land. And as we read this census, uh, this census today, I, I hope that it will be an encouragement to us to, re- to remind not only God's people then but God's people today of His faithfulness. That God is faithful to His people. This census is a list. It's a, it has this particular pur- purpose. But it's, as we read it, we just constantly see God's faithfulness to his people. And so as an outline to us this morning, we're going to look at five ways that the census of the next generation reminds God's people of his faithfulness to them, God's faithfulness to us. 
And uh, we'll, we're going to spend quite a bit of time reading the text, especially in the middle, the point number two. So uh, bear with me. There'll be a lot of names and a lot of numbers. And uh, unless you're an accountant, that it may seem uh, hard to kind of grasp the the um, the flow of it all. But hopefully, as we walk it through, uh, I'll just try to emphasize the main points of each section. You can just look at it and go as a like a faithful Berean when you get home and, and check it out for yourself if these things are true. Numbers chapter twenty six. The first way that the census of the next generation reminds God's people of His faithfulness to them is in verses 1 to 4. And here in this census reminds us that God is faithful to speak to his people. God is faithful to speak to his people. Verse 1 to 4, uh, the first part of verse 4, we read this. Then it came about after the plague that the Lord spoke to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, from 20 years old and upward, by their father's households, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel. So Moses and Eleazar the priests spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from 20 years old and upward, as the Lord has commanded Moses. The wonderful truth about the Lord that we know and that we've seen in Scripture is that He is a God who speaks. He reveals Himself to His people. He reveals Himself to mankind, not just through general revelation, through creation, through the world that's made, but He reveals Himself through special revelation as our first parents walked on the earth, unlike every other creature in the world, God spoke to them. He had a fellowship with them. He revealed his, his will to them. He spoke to Adam and Eve. And he did so, he continued to do so to his people throughout ancient Old Testament history. He spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he spoke to Moses, who in turn spoke God's word to Israel. And what is amazing is that God speaks to his people here, which... As verse 1 emphasizes, that he speaks to his people even though they fail him, even though they sin against him. The very natural response when somebody sins against you, if we're in a sinful, that sin, have a sinful attitude, is to what? Is to turn our backs on them, is to ignore them. Maybe you, some of us respond by yelling at them, getting angry at them. But a lot of times we just don't want to talk to them anymore. There's a, there's a sin there, so we, don't, we just ignore them. But God does not ignore us when we sin against him, when we fail. Israel, and you think about Israel, Israel had been, this was guilty of much sin. By the way, that, that sin is reminded to us that it's in here by the phrase, it came about after the plague. So it's after this plague that the Lord spoke to Moses still. You know, remember why the plague happens? Why? Because of their sin. Because of the gross sin, immorality, idolatry that we saw in the previous chapter. It is after the plague that God continues to speak to Moses. God doesn't give up on his people. We're thankful for that. God doesn't hold a grudge against us. And even though a whole generation of Israelites had rejected him at Kadesh Barnea, God continued to speak to them. God made a way for their sins to be forgiven, to be covered, and God continued to speak to them And God continues to speak now in this text to the next generation. As he spoke to Moses and Aaron, you notice now he speaks to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron. Eleazar is the next generation. He's the first leader of the next generation. Joshua will be the one who will take over from Moses in the coming chapters. But God here speaks to the next generation as well. 
you know, it's a good reminder for us as God's, just as God has, God's word has been sufficient for the first generation, so God's word is sufficient for the next generation. Those of you that are younger, remember that God's word is not old-fashioned or out of date and never, it never starts, it's never just your parents' uh, uh, faith. It is that, it is the words we give you that undergird your faith as well. God continues to speak to them. Anyways, he faithfully continues to instruct them, to guide them throughout. He God speaks to them. And this instruction particularly here we find is the instruction to take a census. Everybody who's 20 years up and able to go to war is to be numbered. And reminded here that they are preparing for war. That the people of God are going to have to fight a battle. They're preparing for war against Midian, which we saw judged in the end of the previous chapter. But they're also going to have to enter to conquer the land. God is faithful to speak to his people. And we see that here. He continues to speak to them despite their sin. No matter what generation they may be, God continues to speak to them. He'll speak to them not only here through Moses, but eventually God speaks to them through their prophets, their priests, and even their, their scribes as well as their kings. And of course, we know that all the way, God is faithful all the way into the New Testament, into our day. But in the New Testament, we know that God eventually spoke through his son. We know that Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 2 says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and uh, in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The words, God, God's Son, are the Lord's final word to us. And the fact that we have the New Testament record in our scriptures is a continual reminder, a testimony of God's faithfulness to his people today. He does not leave us without guidance, without instruction, without hope, without reminders of the grace that is available to us in Christ Jesus. No matter how many days you and I have left on earth, we know, and no matter how we may be faithful or unfaithful to God, God is faithful to you. And wherever you might find yourself lost or at, be struggling with sin, you know that God does not give up on you. God continues to speak his word to you, and you need to go back and look to his word and find the, the, the truths that he wants you to understand that gives you hope and gives you strength. That's number one. First reminder. Second reminder is that the census reminds God's people that he is faithful to preserve his people. And this is the lengthy section. And it's uh, verses 4 to all the way to 51. And uh, I, am, I was tempted to, uh, you know, at times I'm tempted to just skip over and kind of just give you a summary. But I really do want to read because just think about, you know, if I was going to list names, when you hear a list of names, what's significant is you, when you recognize your own name in a list. And so I don't want to name these things because these are names of people uh, who, when they were, uh, and tribes, they're really, these, these are family clans that we see here. These are people that said, that's my family. That's my family. That's my family's name. And they would be encouraged by hearing these names. So I'll read to you a lot of names I, I may butcher, but uh, may uh, the Lord have mercy on all of us. Okay. Which he does. Listen to, to the census of Israel. Okay. So it's going to be a lengthy read. Just kind of relax, kick back, close your eyes, meditate on these truths. Now the sons of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt were Reuben, Israel's firstborn, the sons of Reuben, 
of Hanok, the family of the Hanukites, of Palu, the family of the Paluites, of Hezron, the family of the Hezronites, of Carmi, the Carmi, the family of the Carmites. These are the families of the Reubenites, and those who were numbered of them were 43,730. The son of Palu, Eliab. The sons of Eliab, Nemuel, and Dathan, and Abiram. These are the Dathan and Abiram who were called by the congregation, who contended against Moses and against Aaron and the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up along with Korah when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, so they became a warning. The sons of Korah, however, did not die. The sons of Simeon, according to their families, of Nemuel, the family of the Nemulites, of Jamin, the family of the Jamanites, of Jachin, the family of the Jachinites, of Zerah, the family of the Zerahites, of Shaul, the family of the Shaulites. These are the families of the Simeonites, 22,200. The sons of Gad, according to their families, of Zephon, the family of the Zephonites, of Haggai, the family of the Haggites, of Shunai, the family of the Shunites, of Oznai, the family of the Oznites, of Eri, the family of the Erites, of Arod, the family of the Aridites, of Arilites, Arila, the family of the Arilites. These are the families of the sons of Gad, according to those who were numbered of them, 40,500. The sons of Judah were Ur and Onan, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Judah, according to their families, were of Shelah, the family of the Shelahites, of Perez, the family of the Perizzites, of Zerah, the family of the Zerahites. The sons of Perez were of, of Hezron, the family of the Hezronites, of Hamuel, the family of the Hamadites. These are the families of the Judah, according to those who were numbered to them, 76,500. The sins of Issachar, according to their families, of Tola, the family of the Tolaites, of Puva, the family of the Punites, of Jashub, the family of the Jashubites, of Shimron, the family of the Shimronites. These are the families of Issachar, according to those who were numbered of them, 64,300. The sons of Zebulun, according to their families, of Sered, the family of the Seredites, of Elon, the family of the Elonites, of Jalil, the family of the Jalilites, these are the families of the Zebulonites, according to those who are numbered of them, 60,500. The sons of Joseph, according to their families, Manasseh and Ephraim. The sons of Manasseh, of Makir, the family of the Makirites, and Makir became the father of Gilead, of Gilead, the family of the Gileadites. These are the sons of Gilead, of Eazer, the family of the Eazerites, of Helek, the family of the Helekites, of Azrael, the family of the Azraelites, and of Shechem, the family of the Shechemites, and of Shemida, the family of the Shemidaites, and of Hefer, the family of the Heferites. Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, had no sons, but only daughters. The names of the daughters of Zelophehad were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Terza. These are the families of Manasseh, and those who were numbered of them were 52,700. These are the sons of Ephraim, according to their families, of Shuthela, the family of Shuthelahites, of Beker, the family of the Bekerites, of Tehan, the family of the Tehanites. These are the sons of Shuthela, of Iran, the family of the Iranites. These are the families of the sons of Ephraim, according to those who are numbered of them, 32,500. These are the sons of Joseph, according to their families. The sons of Benjamin, according to their families, of Bela, the family of the Belites, of Ashbel, the family of the Ashbelites, of Ahiram, the family of the Ahiramites, of Shephufam, the family of the Shephufamites, Shufamites, of Hufam, the family of the Hufamites. The sons of Bela were Ard and Naaman, of Ard, the family of the Ardites, of Naaman, the family of the Naamites. These are the sons of Benjamin, according to their families, and those who were numbered of them were 45,600. These are the sons of Dan, 
according to their families of Shuham, the family of the Shuhamites. These are the families of Dan, according to the families. All the families of the Shuhamites, according to those who were numbered of them, were 64,400. The sons of Asher, according to their families, of Imna, the family of the Imnites, of Ishvai, the family of the Ishvites, of Bariah, the family of the Barites, of the sons of Bariah, of Heber, the family of the Heberites, of Malkiel, the family of the Malkielites. The name of the daughter of Asher was Sirah. These are the families of the sons of Asher, according to those who are numbered of them, 53,400. The sons of Naphtali, according to their families, of Jaziel, the family of the Jazielites, of Guni, Gunai, the family of the Gunites, of Jezer, the family of the Jezerites, of Shilam, the family of the Shilamites. These are the families of Naphtali, according to their families, and those who were numbered of them were 45,400. These are those who were numbered of the sons of Israel, 601,730. You can imagine just replacing all those names with the names of people in this church. That list would have had, you would have got a sense of the significance of that list. That your name was on the list. And as your name was on the list, it meant your family, your sons, your, your fathers were going to war. They were going to go to battle. They were going to risk their lives. At the same time, it also meant that your families were going to have an inheritance in the land. The census is similar instruction to, similar in structure to Numbers chapter 1. But noticeably different is that there are now, if you compare it to Numbers chapter 1, there's a lot more names. Still, the basic element is 12 tribes, but there are way more names mentioned. There's sons mentioned, grandsons mentioned. And the, in fact, these sons and grandsons aren't even referenced to individuals, but now there are names that reference family clans, family subclans. These are large groups of people represented by these names. These names, if you look, compare them with uh, the record in Genesis 46, are similar to, the, they're probably taken from that list. There's this oral tradition of the Israelites as remembering the, who, the sons of Jacob as well as their sons and their grandsons. And so one would be faithful to trace their lineage to one of these sons. And it's noticeably that after 430 years in Egypt and then 40 more years in the wilderness, we see here this list of those who came out of Egypt to enter the promised land. These, every single one of these would enter the promised land. And these sons, grandsons had grown into, of Jacob had grown into large families, clans, we might call them today. We can make many observations of the text. There's a lot of just little, it's interesting, every, all throughout there's little comments, notes, and, and it's just, that could be a whole sermon in itself. But I want to just highlight a few things. We won't be able to highlight all of them. But the most one of the more significant observations with regards to the number of the different tribes is that the, one, the single tribe that has a significant decrease is the tribe of Simeon. It decreases by over 37,000, more than half of Sim, the tribe of Simeon has died. Nobody else comes close to losing that many. And the reason is, at least we believe this connection, is that it's most likely due to the, the Simeonites' involvement in the sin of the previous chapter. It was uh, one of their own uh, Simeonite leaders that was involved in that idolatry and immorality. And the part of that judgment, the 22,000 that died, some of them, most, many of them probably came from the tribe of Simeon. For Israel, we learned that Israel's God is a holy God and would judge his people for their sin. However, as much as there is judgment, there is also a reminder of the, of the fairness of, God, of God's justice throughout the sense as well. That you see the references and you can just kind of look for them, all the evidence of where God judges his people. There are evidences of God's grace, God's, really God's fairness in his justice. Verse 9 to 11 talks about the judgment of Korah, 
But in verse 11, it says that the sons of Korah did not die. Remember when we talked about that? Why did the sons of Korah, why, not, why don't they die? Their, their father was led this huge rebellion against Moses and Aaron. But the sons of Korah were spared. Why? Remember that we studied that uh, in, uh, in our previous study in number 16. Because they did not stand with their father. They stood apart. They, they did not uh, join with their father in the rebellion. And God's fairness is justice. But overall, when the total of Israel's warriors are counted, with the numbers, we, we, the, probably the most significant thing that we can note is that the number essentially hasn't changed. From the first census to this time, the number is still about 600,000 warriors. They had spent 40 years in the wilderness. The whole first generation, 20 and up, died in the wilderness. They had oftentimes grumbled and complained and were judged by the Lord. They died of plagues. They died of snakes. They died of the earth opening up. And yet, 40 years later, there are still just as many people as that had come out of Egypt that are now entering into the promised land. And we're reminded that God is the one who faithfully preserved his people. Just as he promised in Numbers chapter 14, verse 31, this is a response to the rebellion of Israel at Kadesh Barnea when they refused to enter the land because they were afraid. God said, judge them with wandering. But he said, your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in. And they will know the land which you have rejected. God was faithful and is faithful to preserve his people just as he promised. And the evidence of it is the census of these 600,000 fighting men of Israel. God is faithful to save his people. This leads us into the third way that God is faithful to his people in this text. And that is thirdly in verses 52 to 56. God is faithful to give the land to his people. God is faithful to give the, the promised land to his people. 52 to 56, we read these words. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Among these the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of names. To the larger group you shall increase their inheritance, and to the smaller group you shall diminish their inheritance. Each shall be given their inheritance according to those who were numbered of them, but the land shall be divided by lot. They shall receive their inheritance according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. According to the selection by lot, their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and the smaller groups. So God gives further instructions to Moses here regarding basically the, the division of the promised land. The repeated word throughout this, these few verses is this word inheritance. The land is Israel, God's chosen nation, it is their inheritance. To all those who are listed in the, the census that we just found, God promises them that they shall have a part, an inheritance, a possession, something that will be theirs to own in the land from God. Each tribe would receive basically a twelfth of the land, but the larger tribes would receive a greater portion of the land, while the smaller tribes would receive a smaller portion of the land. Where that land would be in the land of Canaan was, would be determined by lot. So there's a, it's a little bit de- decided by the numbers as well as a little bit given to the providence of God. Every time for, we see in the census where the cl- a tribe is mentioned, a clan is mentioned, a family is mentioned, is a promise from God that that tribe, that clan, that family 
will have an inheritance in the promised land. And it was their possession that would belong to their family, their clan, their tribe, forever, to be passed on to subsequent generations. Even in the law, if you were so poor, you had to, you had to sell your land. Technically, you couldn't even sell it. You might call it sell, but in the year of Jubilee, it would return back to you because that land was given to you by God. It, it could only be borrowed, really, because that land was your inheritance as the people of God. And we see this, this is the promise that God had made to Israel. In fact, it goes all the way back to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 14 to 15, we see the promise made of this land. And this is a significant promise, and I want you, because it, it guides, it is the important principle that even though we may not think much of Israel and whether they have the land or not, it may not be significant to us on a daily basis, but a significant principle by which we interpret the rest of Scripture. It's important. Listen to this. God says, the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Forever. God had promised the land to Abraham and his descendants, and God kept his promise to give them this land. It is a promise to give to them and to to Abraham and his descendants after him forever. And we know, of course, that there were times in the history of Israel where they were not in the land. Of course, we know that they're going to, in Joshua, they're going to actually conquer the land. They're going to possess the land. But when they sinned, what happened? Eventually, God, after trying to bring them to repentance, eventually just judged them by sending them out of the land to Babylon, to Assyria. But God had promised to give the land to you and to your descendants forever. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. And so he brought them back with the decree of Cyrus, which we studied in Isaiah. And then you recall in our more close, relatively closer history, in A.D. 70, with the destruction of Jerusalem, what happened there? Israel completely ceased to be a nation. For over 1,800 years, time for which the church existed, the church of Jesus Christ, there was no state of Israel. There was no nation of Israel. There were Israelite people, the Jewish diaspora. They were spread around the world, really. But God's chosen people had no country of their own. Is God unfaithful? Did God break his promise? Many in those years, and many which written much of the writing of the church, in fact, reflects it, that many resolved this conundrum, especially during those 1,800 years where there was no state of Israel, and Israel was not in the land, by concluding that basically God had replaced Israel with the church. We call this supersessionism, replacement theology, and it's, 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 we, I just had a Sunday school class on that recently. And the, it basically came down to believing that the promises that were made to Israel really, well, it's really, God really meant it for the church. But then, of course, you know what happened in our even more recent history. World War II happened. By the promise of God, God not only preserved his people when a madman tried to murder the whole people of God. And they were restored to their land in 1948 because God is faithful 
to preserve his people. And God keeps his promises, and he promises to give them a land. And just as given to him, it may be that they sin, and God may take them out of the land, but God's going to keep his promise to Israel to give them their land. For in Romans eleven twenty nine, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's just a reminder of God's faithfulness. Fourthly, we move on. God is faithful. God is faithful to provide a mediator for his people, which we see in the census. God is faithful to provide a mediator. Verse 57 to 62, these are those who are numbered of the Levites according to their families, of Gershon, the family of the Gershonites, of Kohath, the family of the Kohathites, of Merari, the family of the Merarites. These are the families of Levi, the family of the Libnites, the family of the Hebronites, the family of the Malites, the family of the Mushites, the family of the Korahites. Kohath became the father of Amram. The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. And she bore to Amram, Aaron, and Moses, and their sister Miriam. To Aaron were born Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died when they offered strange fire before the Lord. Those who were numbered of them were 23,000, every male from a month old and upward, for they were not numbered among the sons of Israel, since no inheritance was given to them among the sons of Israel. We see a, a, just a continuation of the census, just like in Numbers chapter 1, they follow the numbering of the, all the warriors. There's a n- uh, numbering of the worship leaders of Israel, the, the priests, the Levites. And we see a similar li- numbering taking place here. And just like the previous, uh, the numbering of the 12 tribes earlier in the chapter, we see that the tribe of Levi is also expanded. There's way more names here. And these names, these sons and grandsons of Levi, are really names of clans, names of families, subclans. That the census ends with the mention of Aaron's sons, especially Eliezer, is a God's just simple, mild uh, reminder and affirmation of the leadership of Eliezer of the nation as high priest. But the total number, 23,000, again, just like the number of soldiers, is essentially the same. It's actually 1,000 more than the first generation. <clears throat> but it is in the last verse that reminds us, Israel, of the significance of the Levites. In that last verse, we find that they are numbered every male from a month old and upward. Why are, they, why are the Levites numbered from every male a month old and upward? Do you remember that? Why aren't they numbered 20 years old and upward? Why is it, or 25 years old and upward? Or, you know, 30 years old and upward? Why... why a month and old upward. Because if you go back to Numbers chapter 3, remind, recalls that instruction from the Lord that the, why the Levites were taken, why the Levites are set apart, why they don't get an inheritance, because they were set apart, they were taken to serve the Lord instead of all the firstborn sons of Israel. They're all the firstborn sons of Israel belonged to God because of the Passover. Remember when God passed over, the blood of the Lamb was applied to the door, so all the firstborn sons were spared. So they belonged to him. He redeemed them. But instead of taking all of them, he took the Levites instead from a month old and upward. And they, from that point on, served the Lord. The Levites served as mediators between God and Israel. They were God's servants. They represented Israel to God when worship, and they represented God to Israel. And as such, in contrast to the other tribes, the Levites had no inheritance in the land. They would not go to war. 
And so they would not have a place in the land. And then you think, oh, poor Levites. But no, the Levites, though they had no promise of a land, had the promise of something much better. Their inheritance wasn't just a measly bit of land. Their inheritance was the Lord himself. Would you rather have the finest, choicest land on earth, or would you rather have the Lord? Give me the Lord and a tiny plot of land. I'll take the Lord every time. You hope you would as well, because the Lord owns all things. And he is a greater inheritance than any land that we could be promised. The Levites, of course, were eventually, as we'll see in, um, later in Numbers, they're given cities to dwell in throughout the tribes. But they don't, they're not given their own tribal land. The, the Levites were the, had the Lord as inheritance. That's Numbers 18.20. Let me look that up again. They were set apart for the service of worship to the Lord. They were entrusted with all that was involved with the worship of the Lord, the sacrifices, the temple, the the tabernacle, the items in the tabernacle, the observance of the holy days, and especially the, the sacrificial service that the high priest would do once a year on the Day of Atonement when he would go in and offer cleansing for his sins and then cleansing for the sins of the nation. The Lord's preservation of the Levites and the second generation basically ensures that Israel could continue to approach the Lord in worship. That is, for it was through these prophets, according to his law, that their sins could be covered by the sacrificial offerings. No one could just offer up their, their own sacrifice for their own sin, remember? Not even Saul could do that, the king. Only through the priests. So God provided in the preservation of these Levites, mediators who would stand between him and his people who could offer sacrifices for their sin. As long as there are priests and a high priest, Israel could follow all the sacrificial laws that were given to them on Mount Sinai. But what about today? There is no temple, there is no priest in Jerusalem. In fact, all there is is a wall, a broken down wall. But God still is faithful to his people because he has and still provides a mediator for his people. Of course, we know that this mediator is none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Son of God who came and once for all offered up his life as a sacrifice for the atonement of the sins. He is our mediator 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 to 6, Paul writes these words, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. God is faithful to his people. You know, we, many of you, if you're not familiar with Old Testament law, you might think, you might be confused and think that God saved Old Testament saints by because they offered sacrifices. That was because of a lamb or a goat. That because they offered, they did that. They obeyed some law. That's why God saved them. That would be the farthest from the truth. God did not, the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. That's why they had to keep offering their sacrifices every day, regularly. Those were always meant to be pointers, instructions, uh, pointing, pointing the people of God to the ultimate Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And of course, that was Jesus Christ. He is the way of salvation for the saints of the Old Testament and the saints of the New Testament. 
It's always been through faith in God's provision for, the, for our sins. Well, let me move lastly to the, the fifth reminder from the census that we can draw there, the people God reminded of his faithfulness, and that is God is faithful to discipline his people, verse 63 through 65. Verse 63 through 65, we read these words. These are those who are numbered by Moses and Eliezer, the priest, who numbered the sons of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these were not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron, the priest, who numbered the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall surely die in the wilderness. And not a man was left of them, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. In this uh, final summary of the census, Moses adds that of all the men that were numbered by Moses and Aaron at, in the wilderness of Sinai, not a single man remained. God had said of those men that were numbered in Numbers chapter 1 that they shall surely die in the wilderness. It's because of the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. And that is exactly what happened to them. 603,550 men, fighting men of 20 years old and upward, died in the wilderness. Assuming an approximately equal amount of women in the nation of Israel at that time, that's a total of 1.2 million people died in the wilderness over 40 years because they did not trust the Lord, but rebelled against him, rebelled against his leaders, and refused to take and receive, enter the promised land that he had promised to them. Only Caleb, Joshua, the two faithful spies, remained simply by the promise of God. And we reminded that God disciplines his people. God disciplined them throughout the wilderness when they complained, when they grumbled, and God disciplined because he disciplined them of all nations because they belonged to him. They were his holy nation. They were his people chosen in Abraham. And God would not allow his people to continue in sin because they would die because he dwelt among them. And like a father, he lovingly disciplines them that they might repent and return to follow him. Uh, last time we quoted Hebrews, but in Hebrews... Uh, where it really quotes from Proverbs chapter 3, it says, This of God's discipline, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord, or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Now, that's a wonderful truth, right? God, God disciplines his people. Why? Because he loves them. If he didn't love them, he wouldn't discipline them. He, would, he can judge them. He would judge them for their sin. But he disciplines He. And there's a difference between judgment. Judgment is a, is a punishment for one's sin. But discipline is a, is a is, we could call, think of it as a punishment, but it's aimed to bring people to repentance, aimed to bring his people back to him. As a father corrects our sons in whom we delight, because we love them, we want them to walk rightly with us, have a right relationship with us, we discipline them out of love. And God does that with his people. For the second generation, the fact that everyone in that first generation had died by now, as just as God had promised, would have served or did serve as a healthy promise to them that God would discipline them as well if they are not faithful. And so therefore, as they waited in the plains of Moab, preparing for battle, entrance into the promised land, they needed to remember that they needed to trust in the Lord and his commands. Trust in his leaders. 
not just Moses, not as not as, as they did with Moses and Aaron, but to trust obediently in the new leaders in Joshua and Eliezer to follow their instructions. And they're, they're going to get some doozy instructions. Remember Joshua, and we'll get there. Well, we won't get there, but uh, maybe you've studied yourself in the, Joshua when they go around Jericho and just march around it for seven days. They need to trust the Lord, for he is, he is faithful to them. They need to trust his promises for them to possess the land. And therefore, if he's promised to do so, he will make it possible. Well, and hopefully in these ways, we see God's faithfulness. The Israel would have seen it through the census, and we, our study of it, we see God's faithfulness to his people. Wrap it up here. The second census of all the congregation of Israel was a record of those who would fight against the enemies of the Lord in Canaan. It was also a list, though, of all who would inherit a place in the promised land. And it served to remind Israel that God is faithful to them. Like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before them, they needed to believe and trust in the Lord. And God will lead them into the promised land. Now, as we come to our own application of this text, we remember that the church is not Israel. God has not promised a piece of the promised land. There is no list with our name on it that says we're going to inherit a place in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv or, you know, some of the nice places we're in, in Jerusalem today. But God has promised us something better, the church. He has promised us eternal life with him. In heaven, as we read in our call to worship, there is a record called the Lamb's Book of Life. And if your name is written in that book, you will one day have the privilege of entering the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and earth. And you can read there and see if that's something you want to be at. How does one get on that list? It is through his son. Jesus Christ. And God demonstrated his faithfulness to his people by sending us his son who spoke God's word to us, who saves us, who gives us eternal life through his mediatorial death for us. And he now sits at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us and also as necessary disciplining us so that we might become more like him. And if you have believed in this one, if you have believed in Jesus Christ for the salvation from sin through his death and resurrection, then your name is in that book. And God, who is faithful to his people, will be faithful to you to guide you and lead you and instruct you all the way till you enter that city and that place. And may that be encouragement as we remember God's faithfulness, that we would strive to faithfully trust in him. Uh, a couple questions for us, just a thought for us to think about God's faithfulness. In what ways do, we have to, do you have difficulty trusting the Lord? You know, sometimes, we, it's oftentimes we're not faithful. We don't trust the Lord in certain things. Is there any things that are do? And then, But what helps is that we think about, or we can remember, how has God been faithful in our lives? How has he shown his faithfulness to us in the past? And then thirdly, um, just a question that's a real, probably the important question of all, um, big picture, almost every sermon might be, you could put this question there, but how do you know whether your name is written in the book of life? It's through the Lamb. 
Have you put your trust in the Lamb? The Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for these truths. Thank you, Father, for showing us your faithfulness to your people. Help us to continually respond by trusting in you just as you promised to your people. Thank you, Father, for showing us uh, the scriptures today. And as you have been faithful to Israel, we know you have been faithful to us. We look forward to the day when we will enter into that new city in new heavens and earth and that we will see, Lord, that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Father, may that be our hope and, our promise, and your promise to us. Help us to be faithfully trusting in you all throughout the days until you call us there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.